Our primary reading this morning comes from Psalm 145. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and of your wondrous works. I will meditate. They shall speak of your might and your awesome deeds, and they will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give you thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They speak of your glory, of your kingdom, and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and all kinds of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and unkind of all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Check one. Wow, that really scared me. Um, backtrack a little bit because y'all need to hear this. I just love you. I do. Um, y'all are really one of my favorites. I love, well, thank God, I love the Lord, and I love that he loves each and every one of us and chases us. But I love you guys. I love how you embrace the challenge the grit of the gospel, you, you embrace managing the tension of life, and I really think you do it well. So thank you, and thanks for having me uh, this morning. Here's how I want to enter in um, today's message. I, I really want to enter in with, with grace and understanding, which I think you guys exude, right? When God asks hard questions, he doesn't tear people down, right? Right? 
weight-filled questions given by God breathes life into our lives by, by pressing and pushing out the garbage. And so, yes, while his questions may be uh, confronting at times, right, they don't leave us battered and broken. God always leads us into hope no matter the subject matter, okay? And so that's, that's what, when my question, when it comes in and I'm asking something hard and heavy of like, where is our faith and, and, and does it exude goodness in the public good? I want you to understand that when God asks hard questions, he's asking in love and grace. But I've been studying the book of Jonah and the relevance of this ancient text, I just love it because it, it's, it's like so relevant for today. And the way it's written, it, it really is only a thing of God. It could only have come from heaven. And what I've come to believe is that we're living in a day and age where the American church is reflective of Jonah's personality that we read in those four chapters. There's this overflow of moralistic piety, right? There's an attitude that might is right, not merciful. Orthodox theology, right? The correct beliefs of God are, de- are desired over compassion and grace. And then I've been feeling and sensing that there's this anxiety and anger, really, it seems like almost at everything, right? And, and it's being masked as the, as the righteousness of God waiting to condemn. And what I'm saying is, I think we're missing the heart of God. Something's awry with the American church. And so what I'm saying is that, could it be that we... And I, and I say we because the church is a body and, and I speak with criticism and concern because I'm part of the body. So could it be that we have held so tight to our boxed versions of Jesus to a privatized, safe, sanitized, globally separate, nationalistic faith that in these last three years, God has been hurling storms to earth to awaken what I'm calling some Jonah churches. In hopes, though, that we realize that we have been of no public good. Almost like the storms in chapter 1 on the sea that was recognized as being sent by God by these pagan sailors, but yet totally missed by God's prophet as he's sleeping at the bottom of the boat. And so here's the heavy question that I hope we lean, lean in with grace, and I will definitely thread in some immigration at the end. But here's the question. Is our private faith, our, our personal relationship with God, Is it of no public good? Is your private faith of no public good? See, Jonah, a prophet like no other, was sent by God to speak to an enemy nation. And so I want to sum up the late Tim Keller, right? Jonah seems to be more concerned with his nation's military security than spiritually lost people over his ethnicity and nationalism than over people and societies God wants to embrace. Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad people, Nineveh, and 
really just blesses the good people, Jonah and his countrymen. And then what happens when God, not Jonah's box version of God, shows up, he becomes irate, which is how we read in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, just kill me if you won't kill them because I'm better off dead. The polished church version reads like this in the ESV. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so in my life, for sure in the American church, but let's talk about me, in my life, an area that was reflective of a Jonah personality and had to be checked by God was in the area of immigration. See, I grew up a conservative Christian, Fox News listener, right, wrapped in and waving the American flag as the birthright of God's country and all that goodness, right? Now, I don't prescribe to a political party, and we're not going to talk about this from the pulpit, all right? I'm just giving you that blip for you to understand this, because this is how I grew up and what I listened to, the Sean Hannity's, all of that, okay? In high school, a little bit of my testimony, in high school, I did not play soccer, and the reason I didn't play soccer was because soccer is associated with immigrants. Yeah, the Latino didn't want to be associated with brown people. That's, that's what it was. That's what it was. But on the other side, it was hard enough fighting discrimination as Latino, and so I didn't need the additional nonsense of being lumped in with those people. You get it? <laughs> I'm American mourn, baby. I'm American born and bred through and through. I don't listen to country music, but I'm American born, okay? <laughs> and so really, I was like, I'm just better than these people. That's what I thought. No. God really had to remove the idol of nationalism, the anti-gospel uh, worldview of Christian nationalism and American exceptionalism, really this, this heart of Jonah that I had in my life that said, I don't really care for people. God had to remove the comfortable, the global separated lens of my view. God had to rearrange my mind and understand that my neighbors are not only those that do things legally or work hard or prescribe to the American uh, dream. I had a boxed version of God, and God's like, yeah, you might have a personal relationship with me, and it's real and honest, yeah, but it's of no public good, especially in the area of loving your neighbor and for sure what it means to love the migrant. Regardless of their papers. So this is the working that, and the heart change that God had to do that, that took years to do. Like at times he was removing large portions. Other times he was kinder. And he was like, I'll just take a little bit today. You can't do too much. 
right, back and forth. And I remember that three years ago, I got into immigration work because of Will McCorkle, but three years ago, I was like, God, I'm done. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to speak Spanish anymore. My family doesn't speak Spanish. I'm in the South. Definitely nobody speaks Spanish in South Carolina. Like, what's the point of all this? Just forget it. I'm starting to lose it. Like, I'm finding myself really translating before I speak. It was just like, forget it. I'm in my 30s. What's happening? And God said, I'm not done with you. And he picked my little five foot seven self and threw me to the southern border. Every excuse that I had, every, and there were legitimate excuses. Like, I wasn't that high school kid anymore, but I was like, God, I don't need another project. You know what I mean? As if people are projects. But he threw me to the southern border. And I was like, I guess I'm not going to forget Spanish. I better figure this thing out especially South American Spanish. Very different than Puerto Rican Spanish, all right? Let me just tell you right now. But God had to work on me. How I viewed the migrant, the asylum seeker, the undocumented person, my position, all of that had to change because no longer, God didn't want me going on missions trips to Spanish-speaking countries or sending people to Spanish-speaking countries and I'm not going to reach Spanish-speaking people in my backyard or in the neighborhood, right, with the mobile home park. Something's wrong there. God had to work in my life. God had to change my life. In the process, God rearranged my understanding of missions. God rearranged my understanding of evangelism, of the Great Commission, of his glory, of just simply loving people. And honestly, because of immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees, I've learned about perseverance and trust. I've learned about seeing God as a refuge of praising God as a remedy for pain, as fuel for strength to keep on living. Because of immigrants, let me press a little bit. Because of immigrants, I've been able to see myself as a believer, as a migrant. As the church, as sojourners, exiled from Eden, walking and living through earth until we reach the borders of heaven, not to become asylum seekers, but to become full citizens of heaven. Could the physical reminder of the immigrant be the spiritual representation of where we're trying to go? God had to change some things in my life. I had to learn some things because God is in the business of calling all nations to himself. Every tribe, every tongue, every, every nation, every person will worship the lamb. But really what I had to do was realize that I need to represent and show God not how I was boxing him in, but how he wanted to be seen. I am not God's gatekeeper. And heaven forbid that I try to box God out from loving someone fully. That's a dangerous place to be. God called me as a minister of reconciliation, not an ambassador for my nation. But I use my position and my platform on behalf of other people, especially the least of these. God had to do a work on me. Because God says... That, he ma- that I made to proclaim good news to the poor. 
liberty to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed or meet the needs of my neighbors, regardless of what the land says. And so our private faith has to be exemplified in public good, in the enacting of common good and grace for the thriving of humanity, because the good news of Jesus is that he brings freedom and life abundantly. So what does this have to do with Jonah? First, let me read a quote from a wonderful book called Refuge Reimagined. They say this, the Glanville brothers say this, the global crisis of forced displacement is growing every year. At the same time, Western Christians' sympathy towards refugees, refugees is all-encompassing, asylum seekers, immigrants, migrants, right? The, The whole kit and caboodle. Western's Christian sympathy towards refugees is increasingly overshadowed by concerns about personal and national security, economics, and culture. We urgently need a perspective, a heart and mind change, that understands both scripture and current political realities, and that can be applied at the levels of the church, the nation, and the globe. We got to know what we're talking about, basically. And so as a prophet, Jonah knew the scriptures, and because he served in the king's court, you can read this in 2 Kings, because he served in the king's court, he also understood politics. Jonah understood the life-giving goodness of God and how it affected the public and national interests for the good of the outsider. Remember how mad he was when I read chapter 4? I mean, the guy literally was trying to sail away from God 2,500 miles in the opposite direction that God sent him. Why? Because he knew the implications of God's goodness. And then when I was reading through it, I recognized that Jonah quotes a psalm that he uses to basically curse out God. And I don't think Jonah realized that he was quoting a psalm, Psalm 145, that's wrapped up in the last five psalms, which is a grouping of psalms. Get this, I would love for you to go read them. They're just they're wonderful. But it's a grouping of psalms that speaks about God's love for people, God's justice and care for the poor, God wanting to feed the hungry, God, God looking out for the prisoner, the, the physically impaired, the weary soul. It's, it's, it wraps up psalms about the immigrant, literally, the single parent, the helpless baby, and his heart for restoration to his glory and praise. And here Jonah is quoting out of Psalm 135 to curse God out. Crazy. Jonah's heart, Jonah's private faith was rich in the scriptures and theology, but it was of no public good, especially in regards to releasing his nationalism and the political agenda for the benefit of a foreign nation. And so in Jonah's outburst and anger against towards God, he quotes Psalm 145. And I'm going to go back to Psalm 145 because I think Psalm 145 tells all of us how to shed those Jonah shells around our hearts and then how to shift our private faith to be given in public good. Does that make sense? So let's go back to Psalm 145. 
The first three verses say this. I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. I love those first three verses because this is a private faith. Look at the personal pronouns, right? I will. The possessive pronouns, right? You are my God. But it's a faith that praises God and remembers his goodness, thus blessing God. But what happens? Well, there's the rest of the Psalms. What happens is that it doesn't stay private. It becomes an outpouring of encouragement to others. So verses four through six, he moves on. One generation shall commend the works of another and declare your mighty acts on the splendors of your majesty on, and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They, they will, shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. So what happens is that there's a dialogue about God's wonders. There's like a handoff of remembrance, basically receipts for the goodness of God. So I praise, you praise, we praise to the majesty of God. And the public understands who he is. Why? Because we're telling the next generation. So there's a relationship between generations. Honestly, though, these days, I I don't really see that. I see more of there's a ton of arguments and angst between the generations. My parents, my grandparents, my younger sister, 10 years younger than me, right? Like Gen Z, millennials, millennials not knowing who they are anymore, like the whole works. But like when we're praising God and we're speaking about who God is and what he's done in my life and what he's doing in our lives, generations come together to the glory of God and the good of the people. So something's going on that's causing us not to see eye to eye. That's bigger than us. So we gotta go back to the scriptures to check our hearts. We continue. Verses seven through nine. They, we, shall pour forth uh, the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. That's what frustrated Jonah. (laughs) Like, bruh, get it together. But this is it. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the message that our neighbors need to understand and hear and witness from us. The goodness of God, the kindness, his mercy. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verses 10 through 13, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak to the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. This portion of the Psalms, this is a private faith that is given in public good. 
because it tells of a kingdom of God that can be known and experienced today. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Charleston, in South Carolina, at the southern border, in America, as it is in heaven. Because God is building an everlasting kingdom and a dominion that transcends our nation or other sovereign states. God's calling the globe to himself. Not not to America. We got to realize this. Like Jesus is God and king over everything. A little bit of reframing and rethinking through some things of how we engage other nations. Verses 14 through 19. The Lord upholds all who are falling in, raises up all who are bowed down, the eyes of all who look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You opened your hand, you satisfied the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near. To all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. Would you, would we, would I dare to release God from our boxes and believe that those verses not only speak about you, would you dare to believe that those verses also speak to the thousands of immigrants and asylum seekers at the southern border? That when God uses these verses, he's talking to them, those brown beauties at the southern border, looking to come embrace a society and give back to society? Would you dare to believe that God not only raises them up, as the verses says, but that he feeds them, that he cares for them, that he listens to the migrants at the southern border? Would you dare to believe that he heeds their cries at the southern border? To God, they are not those people. He knows them individually by name. Maybe to many of us, it's like, They're just faces on a screen. I'm going to tell you right now, no. They're faces with names and experiences and gifts and talents and abilities given even by the Holy Spirit that we can all benefit from. That we will be better off because of them. And those verses are the same for you. You have something to offer each other, this community, migrants, because God is building a body, a family, a kingdom for himself of every nation, tribe, tongue, language, culture, dress. I love that. Open hands because God does not withhold He's the God of abundance. There's always enough with God to satisfy. 
I'm going to push it just, just a little further with this next statement, maybe. Maybe, would you dare to believe that Jesus is asking you and I to represent him as he wants to be known with our Spanish-speaking migrant brothers and sisters? And then this, would you dare to believe that God might be leading them to our nation's borders, not for the government to take care of, but for the church to take care of? Would you dare to believe that God's like, enough, all of y'all are broke anyway, enough with the missions trips. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the ends of the earth and I'm going to combine them. They're in your backyard. Just go. Is God not that big that he can do that? Again, I said in the beginning, I'll say it again. Could, could you maybe now forget like 1,500 miles? Could you go to Stall Road in North Charleston in the migrant community in that area and maybe reach some people? Or forget about reaching some people. How about just sitting down to dinner with them and get to know them? Like, we don't have to go to Guatemala anymore. I mean, you can. It's cool. But we don't have to. They're here. Bolivians, El Salvadorians, Hondurians, Mexicans, Colombians, Venezuelans. I've met Russians and Ukrainians at the southern border. Cubans, Haitians. I've met Haitians who speak Japanese at the southern border. It's wild. And they are beautiful people. The nations are there. The nations are here. Here's a couple of statistics before we wrap up the last two verses. In 2016, there were 65.5 million displaced people in the world. This week, I looked up the number. It's up to 110 million displaced persons in the world. Something's off, to say the least. But this quote-unquote problem is not going away. And, and God has allowed me to cross over the border and into Mexico. I've been to South America. Heck, a month ago, I was actually in Africa. Like, God has allowed me to see this, this global view, and literally, God is just like spinning and spinning and spinning the globe and reworking this puzzle of Pangea to help people realize, like, there is one land and people and, like, all these nations and, like, this diversity of beauty that God wants to bring together for his glory. And he's telling all of us Jonah people or Jonah churches, wake up, stop sleeping in the storms and getting angry at every little thing or nitpicking thing. Basically, you're sitting on the sidelines of faith and life screaming into a generation, but you aren't doing anything. I'm not saying it's you, but I was on the sidelines of faith. They didn't get it right. They didn't do this. They don't have their papers. What is going on? And yet, like, I'm going to get, you know, tacos on Taco Tuesday screaming about immigration. Like, come on, bro. It's just, it's silly. Would, like, would you let God do something in your, your life, in your world? It's, it's hard. You know, some of the hardest conversations I have is with my own family. Conversations are hard. But God is good. 
And he has an answer of grace and truth for this tension to manage. Verse 20 says, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Honestly, I think this is a a warning of mercy to not box God in, to not misrepresent him. It's it's a, it's a, 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 a warning to tell us to remove the Jonah shells around our faith. We've got to love God and love people because that's the way of the kingdom. And anything less than that is really wicked. And then verse 21, he wraps up and he says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And I love that it comes full circle because this tells us that a private faith that blesses God is a public faith that is given in good. And we all benefit. So here's the question question that we should just go, if you do homework or, you know, whatever, journal, do your own devotionals, the question goes back to the title. Would you ask God to show you what area of your private faith is of no public good? For me, it was immigration, and now I love it. Love it. I'm telling y'all. Is it immigration for you? Is it the LGBTQ community? Is it drinking wine? I don't know. Like, it it varies, right? We're people, we're crazy, but like, what's the area in our life that has a Jonah heart? A heart of stone that God wants to wear away so that we look more and more like him and live like him and speak like him and have shoulders to cry on for people. Do we want to like smell like Jesus when we embrace someone else? And Psalm 45, uh, 145, I think, teaches us that it starts with the praise of God. Praise God, right? Like, if, when you truly have a, a heart of gratitude and thankfulness, things start to look differently. We can't do it all. You're not supposed to do it all. But start with praise. Be honest with yourself and God and say, God, what, what am I holding on to? How am I boxing you in and not truly representing you to the world? AKA, start at your dinner table. Can I pray? Father God, thank you that you ask us hard questions. And then you pull out a chair and you sit us down and say, hey, let's talk about it. God, thank you for your compassion, for your mercy when we mess up. And I mean, God, I know I'm going to mess up. We mess up. We're broken people. But we're beautiful because we're loved by you. And so, Lord, will, will we remember just even the beauty of like, God, you chase us. You're, you're continually drawing us back to yourself. And then we benefit from that because you are good. And your kindness leads all people to repentance. 
may we remember that when we talk about hard things when we manage tension when we become angry and curse you out with your own bible verses thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve and you love us still i pray these things in jesus name amen
All right, well, you only get two questions because we're running late. Do not tell any of the other guest I'm, preachers I'm that that is the trick, okay? I talk a lot. All right. How about the financial concerns? Is it a valid, it, it's a valid concern. How can open-hearted Christians make peace with that or work it out practically? Okay. How about valid concerns? So that question, thank you for that question. That's excellent. Because that question is part of a larger narrative and a larger belief system. It's basically what psychologists, psychologists would call scarcity mindset. It's the belief that wealth, resources, time, that there is not enough of it for everybody to go around or to share in. In the economics of God, that's false. Because if God is God and he owns it all and, and right, owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills, then God can and will provide. And so if we look at that, let me just go back to my notes. The Lord upholds and raises. The Lord gives them food in their season. His open hand satisfies every, the desire of every little uh, living thing, right? The Lord does. And so when you saw Jesus working and, 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 and serving people, hey, Lord, I only have right? The fish and the loaves. What are we going to do? All right, let's use it. Will you give it to the Lord? Jesus, this is all I have. What can you do with it? And then get together with other like-minded believers and say, this is what we have. Lord, what can you do with it? Don't fall for the worldly mindset of scarcity mentality. I feel like no matter how hard I try, part of me won't let go of how I was raised. How do you silence the echoes of your parents and generational beliefs and move into God's all-encompassing love? Uh, you can talk to my family and I'll talk to your family. Um, <laughs> honestly, that's, that's hard. Um, I'm, I'm actually literally still working through that. You know what helps uh, is learning when to tell the Holy Spirit, hey, Holy Spirit, you need to tell this voice to shut up. Holy Spirit, I'm just going to move into a praise break and a praise moment because I don't know what to do with this right now. And then sometimes it's, it go, I had to go with somebody, uh, another pastor and say, I have a, a fear of man idol in my life that stems and is rooted in family and what they've done. I don't know what to do with this. But you got to be honest with yourself and honest with God and then start to move in that direction. Sometimes it's with, it's with other friends to help you. Sometimes it's with a, a, a pastor. Sometimes it's with actual counseling. But we have to start listening to the voice of God that gives life and freedom. From That's bondage, right? And God wants to free us from that. I appreciate that answer so much. Thank you. Thanks. Please continue sending in your questions, and Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook Live. But for now, let's continue in worship.